Lord, it is, um, it is well, I think, in the midst of, um, as Hope said, in a, a world where sin is, is, sin is still present. And um, Lord, there's a temptation to feel angst. There's a temptation to feel fear. Um, we look to you, and because of what was done on the cross, and because there is an empty tomb, um, we, can, we can say it is well. Um, and so, Lord, we come to you this morning. We come through your spirit, with your word, fully dependent on you. Um, Lord, may you bring worship out of us this morning as we were made to do. In your name, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, excited to jump back into the book of Mark. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. Brian and I get to pastor together. Uh, and so it's my honor to bring the word this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. Um, and uh, we'll actually go 13, 1 through 13. Uh, I want to take a moment and thank everyone that came out to, especially people that got to serve at the, uh, the Easter egg hunt. It was awesome. It was crazy. And it was awesome. Um, it was uh, maybe a larger event than we anticipated, potentially, uh, when we started this thing. Uh, but it was great to see families uh, out in just a moment where we get to just share the love of Christ in a simple gesture towards our community that we live in. So, um, yeah, thank you to everyone that, that volunteered. We're grateful for you. Uh, this, is, this doesn't have to do with Mark chapter 13, but I, I just wanted to uh, take a moment and recognize um, Samantha Savage and Brian Taylor, both of we can give them a round of applause. These are our people. Um, so Brian is right here and Sam is over there, um, both of which do not want to be recognized in this way. Um, uh, Sam, we brought on this year, and I'll tell you, her, the whole story is that she, she basically came and said, how can I help? And um, it, last year, and she had worked her way into a position where we couldn't function without her, to be honest. Um, administratively, she began to just um, organize us through communication and, um, and uh, many other ways. That is honestly what it's done, the way that when I, just the moment that I got to reflect on it, what it's done is it's created space for us as a church to, um, to consider where we're going and to grow in a unity together that it would not, simply would not have happened without her. So this has been not just an event, but this has been a season of health in large part because of what the Lord's doing through Sam. So Sam, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, also, um, Brian. Uh, Brian is, we get to pastor together, this church. Um, I don't know that I've ever met someone who is so passionately committed to the success and the care of others, um, genuinely. Uh, the, the passage that I think about is in 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, Paul, I'm Peter as an elder, this is what he says to other elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you as fellow elders and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, uh, not domineering over those in your charge, but as examples to the flock. And I think you get Christ as this example in the picture, especially at the end where he says this examples to the flock. What he's saying is you're not over them. Enter into this with them. Um, be among them. Serve with them. And um, Brian, I think we're, we're not perfect, but that you do well. You do it very well. Um, and so thank you. Thank you for your service. 
Um, both of you put an incredible amount of work into our church, and uh, I just didn't want to miss an opportunity to say we're grateful. Um, okay, so we go from um, Easter morning, Easter morning, uh, which is obviously all about the resurrection. There's this anticipation that grows within our church, but also as we work through understanding the cross and everything that took place. Um, and we, we just kind of sit in the story of Christ and the cross and the empty tomb. And now we go from the resurrection to the rapture. Um, Mark 13 uh, is, R.C. listen to a couple guys this week, R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg, a couple of them that just said, this is potentially, probably, most certainly, the, the most difficult passage in the New Testament, um, the whole chapter of 13. Uh, Jesus goes into a lot here, and it almost feels like it's unanticipated, like it, it just kind of feels out of place, but it's the longest teaching that Jesus has in the book of Mark um, that's recorded. And so there's a purpose for it, and I'm hoping that today, as we go into this, that it will begin to shape us, uh, that it'll change us, that as we look towards chapter 14 and we begin to look towards the cross, um, that chapter 13 wouldn't be missed along the way. So let's read Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. This, is, this might feel jarring initially. It was for me. All right, so one of the reasons, sorry, before we read, one of the reasons that I love this is because at, like, the beauty of submitting yourself to the word of God and saying, we're gonna teach, we're gonna teach, we're gonna pick a book, we're gonna pray that God leads us to a book and we're gonna work our way through it is that we don't get to pick what we wanna teach and not teach, to be honest. And Brian doesn't get to pick, I would prefer to teach this passage over that passage. It's kind of like you're on the schedule, God's sovereign over everything, and as we work through this, we are going to go one passage at a time. We're going to work our way through, and we're going to trust God's word and his spirit and his leading. So we arrive here. Mark 13, 1 through 13. It says, as they came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And as Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? They will not be left one, one here, one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. Then as they sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Always asking for signs. Verse five says, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying that I am he and they will, they will uh, lead many astray. And when you hear of the wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9, but be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you before trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say what, whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Lord, it is good news that you have come. It is good news that you took on the cross. It's good news that you overcome um, death and there's an empty tomb. Lord, remind us today that it is also good news that our future is in your hands um, and that there is coming a day where you will return and that in this moment, um, or that we can, or that we can be stable, that we can be secure, or that we don't need to be anxious. Lord, I pray that you would, you would cause us to, to grow in our worship for you this morning as we look at your word and we look at the things that you have said that would happen that have and the things that you said that would happen that have not yet. Lord, I pray that we would find in the midst of that peace that is offered to us. We're grateful for who you are. Your name, amen. Um, all right, so let's start here. On January 1st, 1988, Edgar C. Wisenant, who was a NASA engineer and a Bible student, he published a book titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988, um, in which he predicted that between September 11th and September 13th of that year, the world would end. Uh, there were 4.5 million copies sold. Uh, and you're just like, what? Um, and I looked it up on Goodreads because that's where you go to find good books, Hunter. Um, Goodreads, and this is, the book was on there, and this is what it said about it. And Wisenot's predictions were taken seriously in some part. And I know initially we can be like, who would take that seriously? So predictions were taken seriously in some part of the, of the evangelistic Christian community. As the great day approached, regular programming on the Christian Trinity Broadcast Network, the TBN, was interrupted to provide special instructions on preparing for the rapture. When the predicted rapture failed to occur, why not followed up with later books, uh, predictions for various dates in 89, 93, 94, and it says those books did not sell in quantity. Um, you know, after the first one's gone, it's kind of like, it, this is maybe just a side note, but for me, I'm like, for these guys, you'd be a little bit more kind of short-sighted, you know, put the date out a little bit further. Um, Edgar, uh, he's... He's not the only one that's taken a crack at this. Uh, so Jehovah's Witness, in their faith, is, they falsely predicted the end of the world in nine times now, in 74, 78, 81, 1910, 1914, 1918, onward. Um, even more recently, New Age advocates, reference to the Mayan calendar, claimed that there was a possibility that the world would end, would end on December 21st, 2012. Um, we have this strange obsession. Like what, I don't know what it is, but there is, whenever this conversation begins, we have this strange obsession with the timing and the events surrounding the end of the world. Um, there's, I think to be honest, maybe because of our current culture and the general instability and distrust that oftentimes can be felt um, along with the advent of the internet, uh, there is this growing community of doomsday preppers and conspiracy theorists. And we find that in all of us. Sometimes you're, su you're surprised. But you're like, wow, you've got 10 50-gallon drums in your basement full of like, dry food. You're like, yeah, we're ready over here. You know, There's something in all of us that's just like preparing. Like, What is this going to look like? So that is the culture. That's the culture that we're speaking this passage into. That's the culture that we live in, where there is an angst in us. And so when you take a passage like Mark chapter 13, I think it's very, very easy for us to jump in and to begin to take it and, and try to interpret our own moment. 
um, to take these different signs or dif the different things that we see and to try to make sense so that we can have some sort of anchor in the current moment that we're in. And we're not saying that that's completely wrong, but what I do think um, is that if you do that, you may very quickly, easily miss the main point that Jesus is trying to make to his disciples right here. Um, Jesus' entire point is not that we would understand the timing of the end, but that we would be alert, watchful, and faithful in the present. That is the gift that he's giving to his disciples. Um, and so, let's start with the setting. Um, We'll start with the setting. So we're going to work through it one verse at a time. Uh, the first point, we're only going to have two points. So the first point is going to be, um, when the end feels near, do not be shaken. When the end feels near, do not be shaken. So in some ways, again, back to Easter, it feels like this is like crazy. And, and then in other ways, it feels like it's very appropriate. Because the whole idea was that not that Jesus would just return for a moment um, and see his disciples, but the whole idea is that our hope also lies in the fact that Jesus is coming again. And so in many ways, it feels like this is exactly where we should be. So uh, Mark brings us into the temple in, in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. It says, they came into Jerusalem and he enters the temple. Jesus flips over tables, if you remember. Subtle, right? Um, and then he answers all of these questions. There's various religious communities that are asking him questions. They're trying to pick apart his teachings. And after that, it says in, in chapter 12, 34, it says, um, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus was answering these questions in a way that eventually they were like, we have nothing left. Um, and then we see here uh, at the beginning of chapter 13, it says, and he came out of the temple. And I think Mark is clearly marking a transition. Um, and it's not just a transition from one chapter to the next or even one scene to the next. I think Mark is, he's, Jesus doesn't enter back into the temple this was the home that was made for God to dwell in. Jesus represents the very presence of God, and it's leaving the temple. It, there is, it is a sign of that there is a future judgment coming for the temple. And so this, the flipping of the tables was this the beginning. Um, and so you have this, where they transition, they walk out, and there's a passing comment that is made. Uh, one of the disciples who is left unnamed, which I, th which I think is interesting, um, maybe it was John Mark himself. He's like, I just don't want to own up to this. But one of the disciples is left unnamed, and he says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Um, so I was in Center City this week with my family. We went to, went to the art museum on Monday. And so, oh, look at that. So we're in the art museum, and the art museum, they put, there was like, I forget when it was originally built, but within like the past 50 years, there was like millions and millions of dollars put into it. And you walk in, and I'm looking at this. We took this picture, and it, you can't, like, when you walk into a building like that, um, there is a presence that is felt that this place is different than the rest. Like, there is the amount of time and money and resources that it requires in order to pull something like this off. It's really, I mean, it's, it's striking, you know? So there's something about us that naturally, it's almost like it's a reflex that I leaned over to Megan multiple times. You're just like, man, this place is incredible. You know, like the stones, they're just massive. And then we took this picture, and I kind of was reflecting back on it, and I'm like, those stones are massive, you know? Like, how are they pulling this off? Um, and I think it's something that you could feel when you walk into a building like that, but even if you just walk through Center City um, and you look up, there's, they tower over you, and there's part of you that just begins to feel insignificant and small. 
And so while this disciple makes a very passing comment, it's one that we all probably would have very likely made. There's something just magnificent about it. Um, And Jesus gives him a response that, to be honest, um, it's almost like the disciple realized that he had touched on something that he didn't didn't know was there. Uh, And so Jesus says, he says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Um, It's not a harsh response to the disciple, but it is a little bit jarring because you would anticipate that Jesus would be like, yeah, it's a beautiful building because that's probably what we would say. Um, But Jesus takes this moment and he has something to teach his disciples. Uh, and so the next scene, uh, Jesus is sitting with his disciples at the Mount of Olives. And let's start with the map because we love maps, um, which is Mount of Olives is right over here. Uh, it probably would have been a place that they had gone to because they went to Bethany quite a bit while they were in Jerusalem. So it probably been a place that they were familiar with. The Garden of Gethsemane is at its base. But the Mount of Olives is kind of off to the side. Now it's a cemetery, but it was between the Mount of Olives and between the city of Jerusalem, there is this valley. It's called the Kindred Valley. And there's, there's this valley that you, the next scene, it's one of the best places to see the entire city. Uh, so let me, yeah, there's your view of the temple um, from the Mount of Olives. That is, you're really high up. And there's something about like even the scene in the moment that feels epic. You're like, of course he took him to the Mount of Olives. When that is the view where Jesus is about to tell them about the future of the temple, he's about to tell them the, the future of the city of Jerusalem. And so he brings them to this place where they can see it all. Um, and I think we do the same thing. So I thought even when we won the Super Bowl, we want to be at, this, we wanna be at, this, at the steps, the rocky steps, because we want to see the entire city of Philadelphia because it almost feels like we did this together, you know? And there's implications for this, like for the whole city. And so there's this sense of like Jesus is saying, I'm going to take you somewhere and show you something where something that felt so big, when you step and look at it like this, I'm going to show you that this actually, this whole thing is going to fall apart. Um, And so he begins to teach them about everything that is going to take place. Now, Peter and James and John and Andrew are the ones that ask the questions. They ask him privately. It says in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things be? Referring specifically to the temple. Um, And what will be the sign when all these things are able to be accomplished? We're just going to go straight to the response. Jesus responds with, in verse 5, See that no one leads you astray, as many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear the wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So the first thing that can't be missed is that, and the thing that is crazy is that this happens. Like 40 years from the moment that Jesus says this, this prophecy is fulfilled. And... To them, I, I can, here's, here's a source, um, Harvard Divinity School. Uh, this is what they have about the, the destruction of the second temple. Uh, it says, Herod the Great rebuilt the temple in 20 to 18 BC. The Jews uh, led a revolt and occupied the Jerusalem, Jerusalem in 66 CE, inviting the first Roman Jewish war. In 70, the Romans reclaimed Jerusalem and destroyed the second temple 
with only a portion of the western wall remaining. Through, uh, though recent archaeologists discovered that dates of the portions of the walls were later periods, the western wall remains a sacred site for the Jews. Um, so what happens is there is there's this conflict, and there's these rumors of wars that happen. So after Jesus leaves, we see everything through the book of Acts, but even in just like world events, there begins to be this conflict with the Romans and the Jewish people, and after Nero dies, his son comes on, and, and the, the general Titus comes in, and he takes over the city of Jerusalem, and he comes into the city, specifically the temple, and he just flattens it. And it was just the idea that the temple could be, could be ruined was something that was not even considered because it was just so magnificent. Um, it was... Um, I think one of the, you see the temple take on many phases. The first phase is with Solomon, and the second phase, the one that Jesus enters, is with King Herod. Um, and it's the strongest that it had ever been. Uh, the size of it, uh, it was just rebuilt by Herod, and so the size of it was 32, 325 meters wide, 500 meters long, and I know that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, um, but let's put it this way. So in American terms, it was about a mile around, and you could fit 12 football fields inside it. I know that we got like to talk in terms of football. Um, yeah, so to think that you could, you could fit this, like that this, this building was just so massive. And it wasn't just significant in its scale, but it was significant in its purpose. Um, it represented the presence of God with his people. And so for this reason, the Jewish people, including the disciples, believed that it would be virtually indestructible until the end of the world. It was the last thing that was going to fall because we were going to go from this temple to being in the presence of the Lord. That's all it was going to be. Um, and so this is why, notice in the middle of him telling, Jesus telling what's going to happen, he pauses twice and he says, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And then at the very end of that statement, he says, but these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Um, Jesus knows something that is inherent in all of us, which is we are most vulnerable um, when we feel instability. So for these disciples, and we're going to talk about this, um, this is, Jesus is telling them something that's very difficult. Um, this, mean, this means that their future is going to be full of pain. That means that their people is, are going to experience um, an incredible amount of, of pain and sorrow. Uh, and so Jesus is saying, the, like, it's going to feel like the whole world is turning upside down. Like, you're going to hear that wars are coming and then wars are going to arrive. And the Jerusalem, the temple is going to be completely dismantled and there is going to be Others and within yourself, there's going to be this sense that this certainly has to be the end of the world. Um, because in all of us, there is this sense that when, when we feel instability, we feel vulnerable immediately. He actually gets this to the point where it's not only that there's going to be wars and kingdoms and nations, he says that the actual earth, like there's going to be um, earthquakes, and there's going to be famines. Like, it's going to feel like the whole earth is just falling apart. Um, and 
He says, don't be shaken. That's my, word, my way of saying it. Um, so I think that the challenge the challenge with this passage is that Jesus is talking just like um, when it comes to the, why this passage is so difficult uh, is because Jesus is talking about a prophecy. So he's talking about something, a future that is both near and at the same time far off. Uh, so it's, it's this idea that something would happen, but that one thing is not a complete fulfillment of what's going to happen. And so when Jesus arrives, he arrives and he ushers in the beginning of the end. And then there's also this idea that the end is coming. And then there's this, also this idea that the end will come. So we are living currently in the end, but not yet. And so there is this idea that the, as, the, as the temple falls apart, even though they feel like the world is ending, that while that, those are signs of the end of the age, it is not yet. That that is just a foreshadowing of what is taking place in the world. That, and he describes it, which I love that he describes it this way. He said, describes it as birth pains. Um, which, my wife has had three, three kids. Um, and different birth pains for each one. Um, but one thing that's consistent is that it's painful um, in all. And there's a... Um, as you're nearing the end, there is a frequency and um, a severity that increases as you get closer and closer to the birth. Uh, and so I think I, I learned terms that I didn't know before. So like Braxton Hicks is a term, uh, which all women here probably know. Men who, you know, haven't had a, your wife have a child yet probably aren't familiar with because there's no reason to be. Um, but it's this, it's, you know, when you would have something that's not um, quite a contraction, but there's just the beginning of it, and then you, it just kind of grows, and it grows, and it grows, and you get to the point where you're looking at her, and you're just like, babe, we got to go to the hospital. What I realized was that, like, even with Marcus, she just got so much more relaxed with every single child. By the time that, like, Marcus came along, she was like, it was almost like trying to get her go, like, no, we got to go, you know? <laughs> but with the first one, it's like, as soon as, like, the, there begins to be any kind of contraction, we, like, we went to the hospital and then came back, and then we went to the hospital and came back, and then there's, like, you know, so you just kind of learn what you're dealing with and you kind of learn how to function in the midst of it. And he says, this is going to be like birth pains. Like there's going to be this increase and then it's going to subside. And then it's going to feel like the world's ending and it's going to subside. And he's not wrong. He's saying it's not the end. This thing is going to grow. But also the reason that that illustration is beautiful is because the way that he, we get a little bit more in the, in the gospel of John. In John 16, 21, it says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because um, her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has born into the world. That is, that's the beauty of it, is that if he's describing this as birth pains, he's saying this thing is going to increase, it's gonna be painful. Even your suffering as a disciple is just a foreshadowing of future suffering of followers of Christ. This thing is gonna be painful, but as it increased, it means that there's something alive in you. It means that there's something that's going, something greater, some life that's going to come out. And when that life comes out, you are going to, like, it's not even going to be a memory of yours. Like, it's going to be gone. And so the idea that even human history would function in that way, that there would be something that as we endure difficult things in our life, we would know and look towards the day where Jesus is going to return and the pain and the sorrow and the weeping and the mourning that once was all that we could feel is as if it never was. 
That's the beauty, is that there's, there's coming a day where this thing is completely restored. But for now, birth pains. Um, and it's beginning with this temple. And so um, we said, don't be shaken when it feels like the world is ending. Uh, and the words that he specifically uses when I say shaken is do not be deceived or alarmed. Make sure that you're not deceived. It's the very first thing that he says. Uh, we're most vulnerable when we feel instability. So what do we do? We look for an anchor. Uh, this was very much lived out probably in your life and my life um, when COVID happened. When there's a sense of instability, every news outlet goes crazy. And more than that, everyone with a cell phone explains it to you via video. Um, where they just have, they'll explain to you, this is why this is happening. And you're just like, there's all these different messages, right? And there's this idea that people begin to follow these people and things, people get, you know, they get followings. And the reason is because there's instability and somebody wants to know why is this happening that way? And what Jesus is saying is that when this happens, that's going to happen. There's gonna be people that capitalize on this and there's going to be people that claim to be me that are not me. And there's going to be those that are going to be taken and are actually going to be misled because of those people. Be careful. Don't be deceived. He's almost acknowledging there's going to be something in you that wants to believe something else. Be careful. Um, and then he also says, don't be alarmed. Um, I think it's helpful um, in my own home uh, I, I think my kids, every single time I come in, they try to, they try to scare me, and it very rarely works. Um, but I think they're getting better, um, and so it's not immediately as I come in, but like now it's like they'll be hiding somewhere else that I'll be in like a couple minutes, and they'll scare. And I'm alarmed, and there's something in you that just, you know, your pulse races, and they're just like, good night, come on, you know? Um, and I think he's saying there's like expect this. Like, I'm telling you now so that when these things happen and the whole world feels like it is alarmed, because you've anticipated these things, these things actually aren't going to grow fear in you. But because of this, because you've expected it, these things should grow a depth of belief in what I've said, right? Because I said it would happen, and it's happening the way that I said it would happen. So because of that, as the world feels like it's falling apart, stability. Don't be alarmed by these as if these things, one, are going to overtake you, or two, this wasn't something that you were told about. This is, um, this is a gift to the disciples. Uh, and I think um, one more word on being deceived, because I think it's a unique, um, and it's a, it's, it's a special word that is repeated over and over again, first by Jesus and then also by his followers to the church. Uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and this is why deception has one, it could be just someone claiming to be Christ, um, but also in Paul, verse, uh, Colossians 2, 8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive. The idea of being deceived is to be taken captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So I think when we talk about deceived, I think that there is, um, there's a part of us that anticipates old Edgar that we talked about at the beginning. And we're like, would I really fall for that? First of all, 4.5 million people did, so that's crazy. Um, but second of all, you're like, I feel like I could see around that corner, you know? 
Um, and then I think, so you're like, man, if someone comes to claim to be Christ, I feel like I could, I feel like I could see around that. And Jesus also says, well, be careful because there's going to be many that do fall for it. But what Paul says here, he says, you're going to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition and elemental spirits of the world. He said, there is going to be things that are going to lead you most specifically to something that is not Christ. Um, and the way that we see that being played out in our world, probably most frequently, is ourselves. <laughs> like there is going to be um, different ideas and different messages that are constantly portrayed in front of you that are trying to pull you away from Christ. And a lot of times it's something that's pulling you towards yourself, where it's just like you need to know yourself better. You need to do, you, if you could just do this or do that, if, if and, and sometimes it's like, if you could live this lifestyle, and I think that you, on the surface, they don't look like something that is, um, that is part of deception, but I, I think um, in the end, it, at the bottom of it, in everything, if it's something that is leading you to a solution that is not the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's going to be empty. You're going to find yourself deceived and alone. And so I think we need to be careful as we go into a world that very much now that, I, now that I read this passage, it's like, it just, we can kind of feel all these feelings, maybe more so than we felt 10 years ago. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm watching the news all the time, and there's conversations about, um, like, wars, and there's, you know, China, and, like, all these different conversations where you're just like, I don't know that I always had a sense of fear that, um, that something could happen, but there's part of me that there's powers that are external that are in conflict that could potentially change my life. And that's terrifying. Um, and so I think it's just be careful because people are seeking to use that to deceive you. So don't be alarmed, be expectant, don't be deceived, but grow in your conviction with Christ. The second thing that we see is um, when the cost is greater, do not be anxious. When the cost is greater, do not be anxious. So let's read Jesus' response as he continues. He says, but be on your guard. Um, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will be delivered over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge, acknowledge again is that these things happen. Jesus is not saying things that didn't happen. Um, the whole book of Acts is a testament to that this prophecy was fulfilled. Even by the time you get to chapter 4, Peter, um, Peter is standing before the council and they question him. And it says that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he says to them everything about their disbelief. Um, when they question him back, Peter's answer is, um, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot speak of what we have seen, but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Um, Peter and John are witnesses. It's a word that was used twice in our passage. 
where he's saying, you're going to be delivered over to councils. They're going to question you. When they question you, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. It's going to be all right because he's going to be with you. And when, when you speak, they're going to be his words. And when, when the words come out, what it's going to do is it's going to bear witness. Um, it's just going to be a testament. And all Peter is saying is, I don't know about you, but I've seen and I've heard things that are true, and I have to speak about them. And so in this moment, we see this prophecy fulfilled, but again, over and over and over again, we see this is the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, that we would bear witness to who Christ is and to what he's done. Um, I had a conversation with someone uh, just recently, right outside of our space. Um, it was late. I was coming home late. And, um, and I rode past him on my bike. Have you ever done this where you're just like, you just, you, you move past something and then you realize I, I'm supposed to go back. Um, and it, I'm going to be honest with you, it took a little while. <laughs> like I sat there because I was like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know. Like, I have no idea what this guy's situation is. And I was just like, all right, well, I'm supposed, I'm supposed to go back. So um, I, I'll tell you what <laughs> I went up first, and I was like, hey, can I help? It was kind of an odd time. So I was like, hey, can I, can I help you? And he, he was like, no, 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 I'll just start walking away. And so I kind of followed him a little bit, like just a little further. And I said, hey, no, I want to help you. And so he turned around, and we just started having this conversation. Um, and in the end, I got to pray over him. And I thought, and I walked away, and I was like, all, all like my job is is just simply to be present. Like, that is all that it is. Sometimes we make this so complicated. What will I say? How will they respond? And certainly there's times where there will be a, there will be a response that's not anticipated and you're going to say, you're going to not know what to say. But I think what we see here is Jesus is saying, this is being done through my power. I will give you everything that you're going to say. Tell them who I am. Tell them who I am. Bear witness about me. Speak about me. Tell them about the hope and the good news and the life. Because if we don't, who will? That's the point, is that we're there to share the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone that comes across our path. And so share. And I think sometimes we just get, we make this way too complicated. And, and something happens, which I think would be described as anxiety, <laughs> where it just paralyzes us. Like there's something that we just fear becomes more powerful than our faith, and we just are frozen. And you miss moments, and you miss opportunities. I speak from experience, you know? And, and so I think that there's this simple testament that we see here where there's going to be oppression, um, and there's going to be difficulty. And I think Jesus moves from there's going to be a global chaos to now what we see within these disciples is this chaos is actually going to be in your life as well. It's going to be a personal chaos. You are going to be delivered over. And even in the relationships you should trust, like even in the relationships that are closest with father and son and mother and child and all of these, there's going to be chaos in these times. And so he's saying, don't be anxious. Bear witness. Be on your guard, um, which I think is timely. Um, I think um, anxiety, I looked it up, I just the definition of anxiety. Um, a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. I'm like that encompasses, that can encompass all of life. <laughs> That's a lot, you know? Uh, and I think we live in a time where anxiety is on the rise. 
Um, I think this happens in a society when um, comfort and security is given to you in a way that human, humans have never experienced before. And yet at the end of that, we discover that even in our comfort, we're lost. And even in our security, life is more fragile than we, than we actually can control. And so you find yourself anxious. You're just like, I, I guess I can't, I guess I don't have all the answers to this. And so we have everything that we need, and yet anxiety is just through the roof. Um, worry, nervousness, unease. Some, a steady feeling that we feel like there's something imminent, an event that, we, that is uncertain. Um, anxiety is not something that Jesus doesn't address. He cares deeply about that for us. Um, Paul began to realize it in his, um, in his letter to the Philippians where he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Um, and I know for us, we can think, well, well, anxiety, the reason that that has always been helpful for me is because what I see there is that he's saying, first of all, that it's natural for us to be anxious. He's saying, There's, you're going to be anxious. So when you are anxious, he says, let me tell you what to do. Just do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, go into the presence of the Lord. Like he is the one, it's in his presence that there's, these anxieties are going to be released. And oftentimes what we're told and what we like for just a moment is that we believe we have a solution for ourselves with, with, for our anxiety. But what we find over time and what you see with the message of the scriptures say is that our solution as anxious people is that there needs to be something that is more secure than what we can provide on our own. Like there needs to be something outside of us. There needs to be a power that's greater than us. There needs to be something that we can settle into that no matter what the circumstance and anything that's going on, there can be what is described as the peace of God, which surpasses our understanding. Like there's a peace that can be had that the world isn't gonna be able to explain. There's a peace that we can have in Christ that, is, that transcends the moment that we're in. And I think that's something that um, our world desperately needs. Um, I didn't read her book, but um, Megan shared, when I, when I was talking, we always talk about the sermons beforehand. She said, and Voskamp. I was like, what? Um, but she, was, she said, yeah, she says, the answer to deep anxiety is the deep adoration of God. And I was like, well, that's well, that's well said. Um, the answer to deep anxiety is the deep adoration of God. Um, and what, what I think Jesus is trying to draw his disciples to uh, is that what you realize, I think when everything is stripped away, um, when you feel like you've lost, I don't know if you've ever been there at a point in your life, or maybe you think of the lowest point of your life. And I think you, we realize that life is not just like this. Life oftentimes is like, like this, you know, and then there's little ups. Um, I think what you realize, and I've come to realize, is that at the, like in the sorrows, at the points where you feel like you've been stripped of everything, um, you realize God meets you there, and you realize that you have all that you need in Christ, and because you have all that you need in Christ, the moment is not something that is going to capture you and hold you captive that there's a peace that can be had even in the lowest of seasons. 
Um, and I think Jesus is saying there's a low season you're going into for these disciples. Um, there's difficult times ahead. Uh, and as you enter this, he says, do not be, do not be anxious. Be on your guard. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. This is just the beginning and endure. Endure to the end. Um, so as we, as we close, um, I think one of the things that, just a question that I wanted to put before you um, is where do you find your stability in a world of uncertainty? Where do you find your stability in a world of uncertainty? Um, I, I think there's a lot of things that we can give our heart over to without realizing um, and it's, it happens, that transaction happens far quicker than we think. Uh, and so whether, whether it's just something that, um, an outlet that we consistently run to in moments of stress, whether it's um, a relationship that we run to, um, I think ultimately everything comes up empty outside of Christ. And so I think the invitation is to find in, in those moments of instability, even though the world may feel like it's crumbling, um, even in those moments, because I know that right now it, there's probably more stress and anxiety than there has been, but I also can't imagine what this felt like. Um, I can't imagine to feel like your whole, like, I mean, ultimately the picture that we're going to get is that people will run out of their homes and their whole entire city was burnt down. That's a different kind of stress and anxiety. Um, and so I think the invitation is to say, what would it look like for you to believe that God offers a peace that transcends whatever circumstance you're in? Um, and if you want to talk about that with Brian or myself, as hope comes up um, and as we close, we would love to talk with you about that. I think it's something that we are growing in um, because God brings us through these seasons uh, and you just pick up things along the way. And I'm going to have to be reminded at some point that he, even in these moments, um, offers a peace that I can't just earn on my own. Um, he offers a peace in Christ that is different and unique. Let me, um, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we, um, we recognize that you offer um, truth. First, we see that it's true. Lord, it's an encouragement that Jesus would bring his disciples up on the Mount of Olives and that he would speak what is going, the future of a city and a temple, and that it would actually take place is incredible. And so let us not miss that you speak truth. And so, Lord, let us also rest in that, that just as you have said these things would happen, you said that you would be with us in them. And because you are with us, Lord, there is a peace that we can have despite um, an anxiety that we um, so quickly feel that you call us back to yourself. And so, Lord, for anyone in this room today that just needs to um, be called back to you and be reminded that you are over all, um, or that you're bigger than our circumstance, you're bigger than what's going on at work, what's going on in the home, what's going on within the news, what's going on in our community, um, or that we don't go with the ebbs and flows of this world the same way that everyone else does, Lord, but we are followers of Jesus Christ, and you've given us a promise, and that promise gives us stability that is otherworldly. Um, so, Lord, would you offer that to us today? Would you usher us into your presence? Um, Lord, would we be people that are um, stable, not because of what we are, have done, but because of who you are. Uh, in your name.
Amen.